Good morning, Cross Point. Happy New Year. Thank you for starting the new year by worshiping together with us. Kids, you can be released. You'll see Miss Jenny in the back there with the flag ready to receive and help take you to your classroom. So as we get started, this brand new year, 2022, it's hard to believe. It's weird for me to even say that. Like, where are we going in this new year? I want to kind of just start by saying, like, as we gather, what can we expect to be walking through as we gather, as we worship our risen Savior together? What are we going to be studying? What's going to help shape us together as a people? And so I want to kind of just give you a heads up as to what that looks like in the coming year. Because I want you to imagine a church family, a church family that has been through something together, been through a difficult season. They look around and the people that they once worshiped with may or may not be next to them anymore. Maybe they've gone to another church. Maybe they've just never returned. And, and then, then you look outside the church walls and it feels like the church is more fractured than it is unified in Christ. And you begin to think, like, what should be spoken into that moment? But what if a disciple of Jesus, in a moment like that, didn't just write a letter, but he gave to the church a, a poetic sermon to lead them, to speak into that brokenness, to lead them through it together? This is the context and in, in the occasion of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we have in the New Testament. When the disciple of Jesus, John, is writing to the church, most likely in Ephesus, that has been through this sort of situation, that I'm assuming you hear the similarities to our own context. So starting in February, that'll take us through February through the end of May, we're going to be studying through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I'm, I'm working with the, the publisher, Crossway, to make sure that we hopefully have the scripture journals for those are all together in one volume that... Hopefully, we'll come in time as we begin that study together. But that's going to be looking at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, in the summer, we're probably going to be doing Christ in the Psalms, and in the fall, walking through the minor prophets together. It can be hard sometimes, thinking through the Old Testament. What do we do with all these minor prophets? When did that happen historically? What's being said? What does this mean? So that's going to be in the fall. That'll lead us all the way to the end of the year. But in January, where I want to begin this week, and for the next five weeks, is every week we end the service by saying, go and, and be the church. But what does that mean? <laughs> like we've talked about, I think there's a, a moment to reorient our hearts together, to not just where are we going, but how are we going to get there? Because let's be honest, all churches should have the same vision to become disciples who make disciples, right? This isn't something that we get to come up with. This is something that God has commanded the church to be faithful in. The, the question is now, how do we do that together? If this is where we are headed together, what does that look like? What's the culture of the church family in that? And so the purpose of this series is to align our hearts for, for, for the year ahead. And, and, and by that, I don't just mean here's where we're going, but how are we going to get there? What should we have our eyes fixed on? And so we're going to be looking at themes like God's holiness this week, discipleship, community, leadership, generosity in these coming weeks. 
But I want to begin today, and I've been thinking about this for months now, this moment, this Sunday, what I would want to preach on. As we start this new year, what do we fix our eyes on? And I want to encourage us and call us to fix our eyes on the holiness of God. There is no greater focal point that we can fix our eyes to in the coming year than God himself in all his holiness. I pray, my prayer has been, I know my words will fall short this morning of the call to declare the holiness of God. I'm pleading that his spirit will help us feel the weight that my words will not be able to convey. And so I want to begin with prayer. Because we will become what we behold in the coming year. I want us to be mindful of this. We will become what we behold in the coming year. Because the start of every year, we make New Year's resolutions, right? It, it, whether we want to officially or not, they, they, they kind of live in our minds. And I don't think this is a bad thing. It's not bad to say, hey, here's the new start. Who do I want to become that's different than who I am today? But at a certain point, I start looking back on previous New Year's resolutions. And I realize they're the same as they were then. Right? Like the top five in the list of most popular New Year's resolutions lose weight, exercise more, get organized, learn a new skill or hobby, live life to the fullest, save more money. And year after year, these don't really change. I think there's a nature within ourselves that call us to become what we behold. And when we look in the mirror and we look at ourselves and we hope that in this coming year, I'm going to be different. In a year from now, I'm going to be slimmer. I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be different. But then the next year comes around and I want the same thing. And I look to myself again and around and around we go. It reminds me in 2009, there was a German scientist, uh, Jan Suman who wrote a paper on why people return to the place where they began. That people cannot walk in a straight line when they're blindfolded. So he put people in a field. He blindfolded them and he told them, try to walk in a straight line for up to an hour. Inevitably, they thought they were walking in a straight line, but they just began walking in circles over and over again, not even realizing it, thinking in themselves that they were walking in a straight line. And they tried to, they researched the brain and the chemicals of the brain and why people couldn't, within themselves, walk in a straight line. You take the blindfold off and you have an external reference point that they could walk to and they could walk in a straight line. I think there's a spiritual significance for us in that this morning. If you are looking to yourself in this new year to be a better person, to be transformed, to try to become something that you're not, maybe a little bit smarter, a little bit slimmer, a little bit stronger, a new hobby, a a new whatever, but you're looking in yourself for that, you will end up next year at this same place with those same resolutions, longing for transformation that seems unattainable until you give up on them altogether. But if we set up what we are called to, an external focus point, outside of ourselves, and and not placed on just somebody else, some influencer, some online thing, some friend, some family, but on the one who made us, 
who knows us. We fix our eyes on Him to know Him. Then we will truly come to know ourselves, to know God and be transformed into His likeness, not our own. This is my prayer for us as we start this new year. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into Isaiah chapter 6. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we read from it, as we talk about things that are too lofty for our minds to even comprehend, Lord, would you give us even just a taste of what your holiness means. Lord, help our hearts to feel its weight, even if we don't fully comprehend it. Lord, give us understanding, give us wisdom beyond our own to hear your word and know it to be true. Lord, would you do the work that our minds cannot do on their own? Would you give my words power that they do not possess on their own to convey the truth of your word? And in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to kind of go through this slowly. And what it means and what it's talking about. We'll just be looking at the first uh, seven verses here this morning. But if you look here at the beginning, in the year that King Uzziah died, it's one of those things. That's not our history. We don't even know what that means. But if you realize that King Uzziah at this time had reigned for 52 years, that would be as if Richard Nixon was not only president in 1970, but he was still president today and there had been no other president. That's what that would mean. And King Uzziah was initially a good king. He led the king to to deny the idols that they were worshiping, to worship the one true God, and God blessed them. But then the nation became complacent. See, what happened is God became less and less real to them, spiritually, as their hands were filled with more and more material blessings. And they became complacent towards God. King Uzziah began to think himself great because look at all these blessings that that I've helped the people get. And ultimately, that pride led to King Uzziah's destruction. And now the people who had a focal point of a king were wondering, were lost. Fifty-two years he had reigned, been considered a good king, who had brought blessing to the nation. But now he's gone. Now what? And so when that focal point vanishes, the nation has a sense of loss, wandering in the dark. Who do we follow? Where are we going? And it's here in a familiar place that Isaiah has a vision of God. When it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, in the train of his robe filled the temple. Like, here's what, what I want us to understand, that in this moment, this wasn't like 
Isaiah had never been to the temple before, and he's having this holy moment at the temple where he sees the, 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 the robe of God filling the temple. This would have been his normal worship experience. This is like coming here in the cafeteria. I came on a Sunday. I was worshiping, and the weight of God's holiness fell on my heart, and it melted like wax. This is what Isaiah is saying. That in this moment, Isaiah got a glimpse of God's immensity. That his robe, the hem of his robe, filled the temple. The immensity of the one true king. Not this human king that was being mourned for having lost. But here's the true, eternal, heavenly king. His robe filling the temple in the cold complacency of his heart breaks away in the presence of God. And it says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. The seraphim, it literally means that, like burning ones. They're living flames of nuclear-powered praise of God. Sinless, yet humbled in the presence of God. Consider this for a moment. Sinless, burning creatures humbled in the presence of a holy God. Like, there, there has to be a moment where we step back and we realize that holiness does not just mean that God is morally perfect and righteous. Though it does mean that, it does not only mean that. Because here are these heavenly beings that are in awe chanting to one another, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're crying it out, shouting it, because He is so completely other than who they are. A.W. Tozer writes that we must not think of God as highest in this ascending order of beings, starting with the single cell and going up to the fish and then to the bird and then to the animal and then man and then angel and then cherub and then God. That God is as high above the archangel as above the caterpillar. For the gulf between that separates an archangel from a caterpillar is but finite. While the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. It cannot even be compared. Holy isn't just about being morally good, being sinless. Sam Storms write that the holiness of God is secondary, refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. The primary point of, is his infinite otherness. This is the primary definition of holy, not just without sin, but that he is infinitely other. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendently separate. Holiness is not one attribute of many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of his divine holiness. He is completely and infinitely, transcendently other. Holy, holy. Holy. 
The, the repetition, R.C. Sproul in his book on the holiness of God says that it's not said in any other way throughout Scripture. We never hear of God. He is love, love, love. He is mercy, mercy, mercy. The only time that this is said is when He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Everything flows out of this complete, transcendent, different than us being. One commentary said this isn't just one plus one plus one. It's not just saying He's holy here and He's holy here and He's holy here. He's like, He's infinitely, transcendently perfect, multiplied by complete holiness, transcendent otherness here, multiplied again and again and again. How do you even begin to put words to the infinite nature of His holiness? But to repeat it over and over again. The holiness of God distinguishes Him absolutely even from sinless angels. The Bible speaks of the splendor of His holiness in Psalm 22. The majesty of His holiness in Exodus 15. The incomparability of God's holiness in Isaiah 40. That God is the singular being in the whole universe. Strong enough, wise enough, powerful enough, creative enough to create and sustain life. Only God has existed for all eternity. Like, how do you even begin to comprehend that? That God has existed always. There is no beginning. Like, help my mind comprehend what that even means. Charles Spurgeon in, in his sermon once said that it would be easier for us, the tiniest of gnats, to swallow up the entirety of the ocean's water than it would be for our minds to comprehend the eternal God. How do we even begin that his uniqueness sets him apart? Like, consider the sun at the center of the solar system. Giving life, sustaining life, the holiness of God, the souls, everything revolving around Him, that God is center, not us. That He alone is the Creator. It is by Him and for Him and to Him that all things have been created. And we look at the sun and we say, it sustains life. God is holy. And yet, if we get too close to it, you will be vaporized. You will cease to exist. You will be destroyed if you sought to stand in the presence of the sun. Can you imagine if it was the burning gases of the sun in this room, its flames licking the chairs? What would we say if we even had a moment to say anything other than what Isaiah says in chapter 6? Woe is me! Woe is me, for, for I'm lost! How can I stand in, in the presence? I can't. I'm done. I'm dead. This is it. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. I dwell among a people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw the robe filling the temple. And he's like, I'm done. It has drawn too near. And you should see an image on the screen. I've taken this from the Bible Project on the holiness of of God. It's a great short video to watch to just kind of help illustrate in our minds we see our uncleanness. We see the holiness of God. And how can we approach? Now God has drawn near. And Isaiah's like, whoa, I'm done. My lips are unclean. I live with other people. Their lips are unclean. We're all unclean. We're all done. And this is where he laid it out. And for the first time, maybe the first time in Isaiah's life, he sees himself clearly because he has behold God. In the presence of God, Isaiah comes to see himself for who he really is. See, if we're honest, if I'm honest, we think ourselves like little gods. Masters of our own little world, our cubicle, our homes, our, our, our neighborhoods, our classrooms. We think ourselves as having some sort of control in these environments. We think ourselves wise next to fools. We think ourselves righteous next to pagans. But we stand in the presence of holy and we realize our wisdom is folly. Our righteousness is rags. Who am I in the presence of a holy God? And God could have, in that moment, vaporized Isaiah. He had every right. Isaiah could have just turned to dust. But instead... One of the millions of these seraphim that are flying above the throne of God, these burning angels crying out, holy, 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 take a coal from the altar, literally meaning a stone from the altar of God, a white hot stone, and touches it to Isaiah's lips and says, your sins have been atoned for. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, behold, this, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I want us to understand what's happening in this moment a stone from the altar of God not even touched by the hands of the seraphim but being held with tongs is put to Isaiah's lips and it both takes away the sins and it atones for them what does this mean like this is one of those churchy words it atoned for sins. Like in reality, this word atone or atonement was not even in the English language until the 16th century. 
they were trying to convey what this Hebrew word of Kippur meant. And the only way that they could describe it was to say it's to be made at one. It literally means at one meant. Sometimes it was even shortened to one meant. We have been unified. We have been reconciled with what separated us from a holy God. We have now been made at one. And there's two different ways that this word is understood theologically. And I want to dive into them for just a moment. For some, I don't want this to scare you away. There was a hesitancy in even saying this. But I think it's helpful for us to understand. Aaron contrasts these two theological terms when it comes to atonement, and they are um, expiation and propitiation. Now, piation, that, that main root, means atonement, to be reconciled. But as R.C. Sproul kind of talks about in the holiness of God, expiation, if you look at that prefix, ex means to take something away. In this case, taking away the sin, the uncleanness of Isaiah. Propitiation means something to or for. It's meaning both God's attitude toward, but also in making Isaiah holy. Giving something to him that did not naturally belong there. Here's why that's important. To understand these differences, what's being taken away and what's being given in the context of atonement. Because this Hebrew word is defined as to cover over, to pacify, or to propitiate. To give something to Isaiah. So, so often, when I read this in the past, what I understood as happening is Isaiah was like, my lips are unclean. And God's like, I'm holy. And, and I only saw it as this taking away, this removal of sin. Now he's clean. But is he holy? No. God was having to give him something that was not his. A righteousness. A holiness that Isaiah did not possess in himself simply by removing the sin. It was something God had to give him so that they could be one. This is why when I wanted to make such a, a point of the angels who are sinless still marvel at the holiness of God and still chant holy, holy, holy. But how are we to be made one with a living, holy God? It is not merely by being morally perfect. It's not merely by having our sin taken away. Something else has to be given to us, and that is the righteous perfection. The transcendence of a holy God has to cover us if we are to be in His presence. And we see this then play out. Because the question is, okay, who cares? Why get this technical? Like, why does any of it matter? Like, there has to be that question, who cares? But I think it comes back to this moment we're in as we're starting this brand new year. Who, who are you trying to become in this new year? Who is it that you're trying to imitate? Which podcast are you listening to? Which influencers are you watching online? Which people in, in your particular profession do you want to, to mimic? Who are you beholding because you want to become like them? 
Because the call and the invitation is to have the holiness of God as our focal point. What inward strength are you seeking to draw from, to provide from in yourself the motivation and the desire to be transformed into who you believe God is calling you to? Because if you're looking to yourself, you will fail. If you're looking to your own desires, your own passions to seek to become who God has created you to be, you will not be able to attain it in your own power, in your own strength. It will fail. It's not enough to simply enter this new year desiring to be a better person. You will be the same person you have been. And you will continue to be. It may look different. But you will circle back around to this moment at the start of a new year with the same resolutions, desiring to be someone different. And so I have three applications that I want us to consider in light of fixing our eyes on the holiness of God. Because we will become what we behold in the new year. And I don't know about you, but who will we be in one year from today? Who will you be? Who will we be? Because if we follow ourselves just as a church, and in one year from now, we're right back here, and we're no different, we're no more transformed, we're no more holy, we're, we're, we're no more reflecting the glory of God than we are in this moment, then why do we exist? There is a call and a challenge, I believe, for us together as a church to behold the holiness of God, to be changed by Him, to allow His, His, His holiness to burn away our unrighteousness, to transform us more into His likeness so that we reflect His glory. So that who we are one year from today will be more like Jesus than this moment. I want that. I need that. And so the first response is to behold your holy God. You will never truly see yourself until you have a true vision of God. Like I said it with Isaiah, he came to see himself most clearly when he saw the holiness of God clearly. And then he says, woe is me. I can see myself in the light of his holiness. There is a call, an invitation to look upon the holiness of God. to have a clear vision. Like, is there anything greater coming into this new year than to say, God, I want to know you more. Open the eyes of my heart to see you, to know you more deeply, more fully, to understand the weight of your holiness if even by just a single ounce. Let me feel it. Let me know it, God. Or are we just coming into the new year content, complacent, hands full of material goods, 
while God grows more and more distant. There's a moment as we start this new year to reorient our hearts from the things that fill our hands to fix our hearts and to find their rest in God. Behold your God. The second application that's on my heart for this coming year is to be loved. Imagine you today in this moment. All your brokenness, all the mistakes, all the failures. What part of yourself would you cry out before God? I'm unclean. My lips are unclean. My ears are unclean. My eyes, like the list can go on and on. And it's all present and it's all real and it's all tangible and it's all exposed in the holiness of God. His light exposes everything. And yet He chooses to love you in that moment. He chooses to draw near. Not because you've changed. Not because you're a better person. Not because you've done anything to impress Him. But simply because of who He is, He loves you. Listen to this verse in 1 John, which we'll be getting to in a few weeks. 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is where I want to draw the connection. See, in the sacrifice of Jesus, when He died on the cross, He took our sins. He removed the uncleanness from us. That's expiation. But He's also our propitiation. He is also our righteousness. He is our holiness. He covered us in His perfection. And so you can sit there and you can say, but I'm unclean. Don't you see my brokenness? And it's not because we've loved God, but that He loved us. That He died on the cross for us. And He not only, not only took our sins upon Himself and was pierced and broken as He died on the cross, but He covered us in His perfect, absolute righteousness so we can be at one, atoned with the Holy God. This is the Gospel. Like, I want us to pray this for ourselves and for one another. Psalm 119 says, Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I may see you clearly. Like to behold our God, to be loved, 
to understand what this love means that surpasses my own understanding. Lord, open my heart to understand this truth because it's not natural. I don't naturally understand this. I need supernatural help from a supernatural God that transcends who I am to help me understand. And then think of this prayer from Ephesians 3.8 to see the importance of why it's so important that we not only see the holiness of God, but we understand that this holy God has moved toward us with love. Not because we've loved Him, but because He chose in His infinite wisdom to love us. Lord, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. Give me the power. Give me the power to understand as all God's people should, just how wide, how long, how high, how deep Your love is. Lord, help me. Help me experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then, and only then, will I be made complete. Do you hear Paul's words in this? This is not a bad thing to pray for ourselves. Lord, help me understand what it means to be loved by you. And I want to understand its height. I want to understand its depth. I want to see how long it runs and how deep it runs. And I want to understand it to its fullness. And I know that it's like a gnat drinking from the ocean. I'll never understand it fully. But only then, when I understand who you are and who I am in your presence, will I be made complete. Only then... This is something Paul prayed for the church. It's something I pray for us. And that I encourage us to focus in and pray for one another in this coming year. And as we behold God, and as we understand what it means to be loved by a holy God, it is this call then to be loving to others. To be loving. First John 4, it continues. Like after it talks about, and this is love, that Christ is our propitiation. Beloved, it begins in verse 11. Beloved, because you are loved. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's as simple as that. Because God has so loved us, we now, having received that love, ought to love others. No one who has ever seen God, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. When we behold God, we will be transformed into His image. This is why Scripture then says, be holy as I am holy. That's not something we attain on our own. That's something we have received because of Christ. This is my heart for us. That as we begin the new year, what will you focus on? Who do you seek to become? The focal point I desire for us as a church, the focal point that that I challenge you to fix your life on in this coming year is Christ. The holiness of God. And let it show you who you really are And let it show you who He is declaring you to be because of His perfect grace and mercy. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for this moment. Lord, I do ask that you would open our eyes to see in the familiar, in the everyday, how even the train of your robe, your glory, your holiness saturates creation. Your invisible attributes can clearly be seen in creation, and yet so often we are blinded to it because of our own pride and arrogance. Lord, would you open our eyes to see? Would you help our hearts to comprehend the reality of your love? Its height, its depth, its breadth. Lord, help us to not know it, but help us to experience your love. That we can't just understand it intellectually, Lord. But as we fix our eyes on you, would you help us to be a congregation that is being transformed into your likeness because we have fixed our eyes and our hearts on you? Lord, would you help us to be loving and serve our community well? Not just because we're good people, but because we have received such a lavished undeserving love ourselves that how can we but allow it to overflow into the lives of others Lord would you be glorified would you work Lord and we ask all of this in Jesus name Amen